Don't worry. Don't worry. This time it won't be two hours. Probably, because I have no real behind-the-scenes stuff to talk about. Just, you know, the actual film. Whoops, I forgot to flip back my notes. Two, three, four, five. Five pages. God, it, you know, it really doesn't feel that long when I'm taking the notes. I have a bit of a story to tell you, and it's relevant. Uh, I actually meant to say it last time, but I got so bogged in saying so many other things that weren't related to the movie itself that I wanted—I decided I'd talk about it here because it's kind of relevant to Two Towers. See, Two Towers is the first film I saw in the theaters of of the six films. I've seen all other five, uh, but I didn't see Fellowship of the Ring in the theaters. I never have, and it wasn't well. As I think I made clear, I wasn't a fan of the books, right? So I was like, okay, well, why would I go see a movie about that? So it just didn't really register with me. So funny story. I'm at my aunt's 50th birthday party, not too long after that, but this is before Two Towers came out. And she has a really big TV set up. Uh, and she's one of those people who likes to just have something on on the television, even when nobody's actually watching it. She just likes there to be something there. And having things going. It, it just, it comforts her. So, she's just got this random movie on. And I'm walking around kibitzing and talking and, you know, socializing with everyone. And I need to sit down and, and munch for a bit. So I plop down on the couch and munch and I look up. And it happens to be the scene where they are first entering Moria in Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. And I don't remember exactly how it came to be. But I remember that the movie just kind of slowly dragged me into it until I started paying more attention to it than my aunt's birthday party. And I felt really bad about that once I realized I was doing it. I'm like, oh, God, sorry, sorry. But I was like, wow, this is really good. I was an idiot for avoiding this. So two towers, I went and saw Day Of, you know, midnight showing, walked into the theater, and I was like, all right, let's do this. And I loved it. It was a great experience. The The crowd was fantastic. And everyone was like, yeah, this is great. Uh, I was really digging it. And I mentioned that especially since, you know, the intro scene with the Balrog fight was, was just, yeah. I will say this, though. Um, I only have a couple of little things to say here, and then I'll get to the movie proper. I've compared the Lord of the Rings trilogy to the Star Wars trilogy many times. Fellowship of the Ring is pretty clearly a new hope. Lots of establishment, a fairly classical style story, although it's actually two stories in Fellowship of the Ring, and has some... It, it feels just a little bit more amateur than the others. I don't mean in terms of tone or quality. It's actually a great one, and I, it's actually my second favorite of the whole of the six films. But... What I mean by that is most notably the effects or the scaling things or some of the, the background. It's a little bit more noticeable, and I tend to notice more of those things because they were still getting used to doing that and using those new systems that they basically developed for the movie there, just like in A New Hope. You know, you, you look at the difference between him activating a lightsaber in A New Hope versus him doing it in Empire Strikes Back. It's a completely different thing, and it's noticeable. But for me, Two Towers is not the Empire Strikes Back of the two. While it is, you know, the darker story and it is the, the build-up to the finale and all that fun stuff, for me, it strikes me more as the Return of the Jedi of the trilogy. Because when I think of Return of the Jedi, what I think of is what it does good, it does amazing. But then there are things that just kind of make me facepalm. 
And there are, and it, especially when I went back through Return of the Jedi for the rumination, it became more and more clear that there were certain aspects of the movie that were basically just there for the kids or for the toys or because, you know, Han Solo's role was just kind of weird in Return of the Jedi and he has almost no lines and there's the freaking Ewoks and a lot more humor is pushed in and there's a lot more strange structure, you know, just weird things, right? And, of course, Return of the Jedi also has some of the best scenes in the frickin' Star Wars series, in my opinion. Again, when it does good, it does amazing. And that's what I feel about Two Towers. Because when Two Towers nails it, it nails it. And it's just, God, yes, this is frickin' amazing. And then occasionally I'm like... I'm going to point out some of these as I go. I know I wrote down a couple of notes, but the ones I want to... The really big ones I want to wrote right, right at the beginning, have to do with Gimli, Legolas, and Gollum. So Gollum obviously basically started being a character in Two Towers, and I don't want to in any way go go against Andy Serkis. The man did an amazing job. Uh, I mentioned the motion capturing thing back last time, and this really shows his job. It's no wonder so many awards were flung <laughs> at, at, well, at the trilogy as a whole, thanks to Return of the King, but you know, as a result of this. But Gollum, what I mentioned about Gollum is more about Sam. See, Sam is against Gollum. In fact, he is outright mean to Gollum. And in a way that doesn't quite fit. The best way I could probably theorycraft my way around it, if I was to presume that there was a reason for it other than what I'll get to in a moment, I would say that Sam has a simple mindset and therefore is looking at Gollum as if he is a bad guy without the possibility of him being anything else. However, that flies in the face of the fact that Faramir was very clearly and definitively a bad guy until he became their ally. Sam even praises him for that. And yet he never changes his mind about Gollum. I mean, the closest he comes is to, to say, by the way, you know Frodo didn't mean to hurt you, right? That's the, as close as he comes here. And this continues a little bit into Return of the King as well. Here's the problem with it. It's kind of cheap from a writing perspective because what it is is Sam is right to not trust Gollum in the end it, it, it's something I've started thinking of as the Janeway effect from over on Star Trek Voyager because every now and again Janeway will just abstractly say blah and it's nonsensical and it, it completely flies in the face of all evidence and yet the episode twists itself around to insist that Janeway was correct about blah because Janeway was right and it does that just so that it can have that twist of, aha, they were right. And I don't like that. Then there's the thing with Gimli. Now, Gimli's a frickin' badass, and I like him as a character. And he's had some good character moments already, and he will have some good character moments in the future. And yet, he's, he's pretty much the focus of comic relief in this film, and a little bit in the next one as well. And you'll notice that's a new thing to these two. That wasn't really in Fellowship of the Ring, aside from, like, one or two brief things. He just suddenly becomes the comic relief character. Now, I'm willing to let that slide a little bit more than the Sam thing, because he is still a badass. He still gets off some good shots. But, for example, the warg scene, when the warg riders are encroaching upon the 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 Rohirrim. Well, not really the Rohirrim, but, you know, the, the troops that are there, the mounted cavalry. And Legolas is killing all of them all, and Aragorn's killing over the place, and Gimli's, like, spending the whole battle under an ever-increasing corpse pile, because it's funny. 
The only thing I will say, though, before you think me being too harsh, I do like the fact that Gimli's like, oh, I gotta get off. Oh, there's an orc! Kill! Oh, crap, now I've got more weight on me. That was kind of nice. And if it had just stopped there and that was the extent of the joke, that probably would have been fine with me. But this is a recurring thing. That's not the only example of it. And, of course, then there's Legolas. Now, Legolas always had a cool factor for him. He's basically the typical elf. But it really is dialed up quite a bit in Two Towers. And in Return of the King, for that matter. There's a scene of absolute ridiculousness that's actually in Return of the King uh, when he takes down, like, 50 things and does so looking stylishly. And I get that's the point, and I still like watching it, but I admit I'm looking at that like, what? Now, I wanted to get all this out of the way right up front because this is part of leading to my why well, I mentioned it's the, re uh, the Return of the Jedi for me, but also because... I'm reminded of something that Nostalgia Critic commented on. He was like, here's the ten stupidest things in Lord of the Rings. In fact, I think he brought up a couple of the points I just mentioned. I don't remember. It's been a little bit. And then after the, he spends like 15 minutes, minutes talking about some stupid things in the movie, he then has a brief bit where he says, now let's talk about everything that's amazing in the movies. Pause. Oh, wait, we can't because it's too much. Please don't think I'm just being too harsh on this. I, I, it's actually boggling my mind how much some, some, I've gotten some viewers lately who say, I, I am too negative. Okay, please accept my un, undying praise for this movie. Just be, I don't know, it, it bothers me that just because I am critical of certain things, and just because certain things in the work don't work for me, that I get attacked for that. And for some reason that bothers me. I still love this movie, just like I love Return of the Jedi. They're still flawed. FF6, my favorite game of all time, is flawed. And I still plan to do that critical review where I talk nothing but negatively about it just to, to do the, the, the reverse analysis and for a, a balancing point for my own perspectives on it. But that doesn't mean I'm not I'm, I'm going to suddenly stop loving FF6. You know? Anyways, let's move on. So it starts big. Just bam. Fright. Amazingness. And it's actually funny because... I mentioned before that, in my opinion, the Balrog would have been able to one-on-one -on -one defeat Gandalf. I mentioned that because as they're plummeting, it's not really a one-on-one. -on -one. It's the Balrog barely able to even reach or attack him. And Gandalf is actually has the ability to maneuver and attack him as they're falling. It's not until they actually hit, and the battle continues and continues and continues, um, all the way up to the peak of the mountain, that the Balrog is able to fight back. So Gandalf had quite a few, shall we say, free hits in there. And I bring that up because Gandalf still died from that battle. It really helps to... It, it, it's good. It helps to emphasize that the Balrog really was a terrifying threat. That Durin's Bane was this nightmarish, overwhelming threat. And that... You know, that all that build-up wasn't for nothing. That he wasn't just a... Oh, he's defeated. I like that. What I want to know is how Frodo knew about that. I, now, again, just within the confines of the movies, I think there's two probable theories here. Number one... The possibility of the ring connecting Frodo to to someone he cares about, to someone that was relevant to him in his life. I think that's kind of vague, but there's a lot of sort of vague perception. I feel this. I perceive this. You know, I see this. I had a vision of this kind of a thing in these movies, so that's possible. What I think is more likely, though, is that he the ring is naturally connected to all the beings of significant power. Most notably someone like Gandalf, who, you know, is not... Human. Even in the confines of the movies, he is not a man. No, I don't mean he's a woman. You know what I mean. He's not a man. Okay, is that better? 
<laughs> Gollum's a man. No, that that's also not true. Um, so I think that that's uh, why he was able to receive this kind of dream vision of the last few moments of the battle. And of course, we're able to see the battle too, which is awesome. So the seasoning. I like the seasoning thing. It's really nice. It's a little... So first of all, it's nice because... I'm yawning. It's nice because it showcases the simple perspective as well as the complex perspective. Again, that's going to be kind of a recurring thing throughout all three movies. The simple perspective is Sam's. It's some of the best salt in, in uh, I think it's the West Farthing, I think it's specifically. But, you know, it's, it's some of the best salt from back home. And therefore, it's something that's valuable. You know, very simple reasoning. And then Frodo's response is, it's a piece of home, which is a little more complex of a thought. And the two are not incongru incongruent with each other, and I like that. Uh, I like the scene with the real elvish rope. There's an implication that they use it a lot more than the one time they see it, and I like that, because there's no need to show us every time they use the elvish rope. There's no need to, to do this montage of the rope working. You show it to us once, and we understand it works, and we know that every time they use it henceforth, it's going to be doing its little magic enchantment thing, which is nice. Speaking as someone who used to go rock climbing a lot, it is surprisingly easy to get turned around and lost when you're in basically a rocky, unpleasant terrain, especially when you have limited visibility. And I only point that out because I've had some people say, how the hell do you get lost there? You just pick a straight line and go. Again, speaking as someone who used to interact in, in hell, less, less horrible terrain than this, it is not that easy because you basically can't pick a direction and go unless you have the ability to fly. So it's I, I totally get them being lost there, and of course Gollum knowing the area quite well, yeah, I can I can buy that at least, and that brings us to Gollum. And let me go and just say one thing really quick. It is my opinion that motion capturing is absolutely a form of acting, no question, no hesitation. I think the fact that that came into question and was something that was being debated amongst the Academy. This is two years ago now, I think. I can't remember actually. It's semi recently. Uh, is nonsensical. It's the same as saying voice acting is not acting. Ridiculous. Imagine how many actors could actually act if you took away, you know, one of their greatest tools, their voice. Can't say anything. All you can do is act with your motion, act with your movements. Now, I bet you there are some actors who couldn't adapt to that, but I also bet you that there's other actors who would still be able to get across things in that action. Forgive me for bringing Star Wars into this again, but I've given a lot of praise to a man whose name I unfortunately don't remember right now, but the guy who was in the suit, the Darth Vader suit, because his motions and his actions were just as much a part of Darth Vader as uh, James Earl Jones's voice was. Those two things combined made Darth Vader. Just James Earl's voice doesn't make Darth Vader, you know? So, I mean, going back to the 70s here, we, st we have motion, you know, as, as an acting thing. It's not quite motion capturing, but still. I want to give huge praise, really, to the team that made Gollum. I cannot overstate that enough. I mentioned the Balrog team needs a medal. The guys who made Gollum need a freaking medal. It's, it's astonishing. But the best part is both characters are distinct visually in terms of how they look the eyes and, and, the, and the overall uh, the way that his face uh, his his expression changes when he switches from personality to an, uh, one of the two personalities his tone changes but the way he actually moves changes too Gollum is far more bestial and hunched over and like, like some kind of slavering beast Schmeagel is much more kind of cowardly and and like a like a, a whipped puppy kind of a thing you know just 
don't don't hit me anymore kind of a thing. And he gets that across in all three aspects of it, and it's really well done. Um, I, again, I know that this is not exactly treading new ground here, but it deserves to be praised because it's awesome. Also, note how when he switches back to Smeagol, you know, Gollum is clearly, oh, we will take shit, we will take shit. And then he just kind of wilts into Smeagol. And, just, ah, and it's a nice transition into the next scene. And then, of course, Sam is mean to him and always will be. So I'm going to... I tried to categorize my notes a little bit better this time. Two Towers has a lot of events happening simultaneously. And so the camera point jumps around a lot. And so in many cases, I would have, like, one note about a scene... And then the camera jump would change, and I'd have another note about that scene, and it would jump to a third scene. And then it would jump back to the first scene, and I'd have a continuing note, which is related to the first note. So I tried to categorize it a little bit better here for you guys. I hope this will uh, make a little bit more sense as I go through this. So notice that Pippin is still not fully cognizant of the nature of the threat that they're facing. And that makes sense. And he shouldn't be. He shouldn't really understand how bad things are. And that's going to be kind of a recurring theme that will kind of reach a natural conclusion by the end of the film, which I'll go ahead and talk about now because it's a logical place to talk about it. Towards the end of the film, he's talking with Mary, and they've just failed to convince the Ents. And he says, let's go home. This is too big for us. We still have the Shire. And then Mary's the one who hits him with, no. And he has this great line, you know, the fires of Isengard will spread. There won't be a Shire, Pippin. And that's probably the first moment that it finally actually penetrates Pippin's thick skull. I don't mean to make him sound stupid. It, it, and actually, quite the contrary. Pippin is not that stupid. It's just he's really, really hobbity. <laughs> you know? He is very hobbit. And so it takes all of this and all these events and all this time until finally it is driven home for him without the Shire you know, I'll talk more about that later because it also has relevant to another point. But I like that. That's his character arc throughout the course of this film. Saruman. <laughs> I have a little bit more to talk about Saruman. Ironically, Saruman's character, his motivations are now being examined a little bit in greater depth. I mentioned the intimation back in the first movie about death. You know, my choices are capitulation or death. I choose capitulation. In this movie, it becomes more clear that, that that is his motivation, that he is motivated by fear of dying, because he now feels safe. He has this alliance with this greater power. It's okay. I've, I've allied with the frickin' Nazis. I'll be safe for a while. <laughs> I mean, that's actually a bad example, but th that is basically how he's thinking. I have allied with the superior evil power, and therefore I am going to be safe. Here's the thing. Obviously, not only is he not, but in his job here, as I said, he's getting more and more used to it. Pay attention to his outfit over the course of this movie. He starts off still kind of, like, like not quite as pure, if you will, as he was back in the first movie. But by the end of this movie, he actually, he starts, you see, start to see dirt and stains in his outfit, and a little more grime and more dirt into his fingers, and his hair isn't quite as kempt. He just starts to look worse and worse as the entire thing goes by, which is funny, because Gandalf does the exact opposite, appropriately. Gandalf the White, I mean. So now he feels safe, and he starts to get used to what he's doing. 
And it's, again, such an irony how useful Saruman probably would have been for our side if he had decided to, to gamble on the fool's hope. He manages to unify the Dunland people in, in no time at all, gets them to swear to him, raises up an army of orcs, raises up an army of Urukai, continues to raise an army of Urukai, keeps raising up armies of Urukai until he's got this frickin' massive army of Urukai. And uh, he does all this, he unifies all these forces together, and it's noticeable that he starts to enjoy it a bit. He starts to enjoy being this overlord, being the person that people bow and swear to. He starts to like it a bit. And I think that's one of the big reasons why he kept pushing on this path, not just for survival, but now I too can have some of the benefits of rule. So it's a nice, if cliched, usage of the children to hammer the point home when the... Uh, they call them Hillmen, I think? No. I'm trying to remember what the, the film calls them. It's the Men of Dunland. But it's the guys who are attacking the, the outer air territories of, the, of Rohan. Anyways, when the Dunlanders... The Hillmen? Is it the Wildmen? God, I actually don't remember. We'll say Wildmen. When the Wildmen start uh, hitting, burning, and torching and killing their way through the villages... I mean, obviously we see villages burning, we see people running around and scared, but to quote Morden once again, that you, you, know, you, you can't really comprehend that. I'm just going to start calling that Morden effect because it amuses me. We have Morden effect in full display because we don't really per perceive it until we see these two children being put on a horse by their mother and being told, get the hell out of Dodge, and the very real possibility that their mother died as they fled. And it really hammers in on a personal level, on a level we can understand and comprehend just how bad what's happening to Rohan is. And that's relevant for later, too, because the task facing the party, Gandalf... Aragorn's Legolas and Gimli is tremendous because Rohan is already screwed by the time they even show up, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Note the film immediately jumps, by the way, from establishing the plight of Rohan to Aomer. And the first thing Aomer does is, aside from, he, he helps to establish himself as someone who is a man of action, rather violent, he seems rather, you know, antagonistic kind of a character, maybe that's just the way the actor plays him, I don't know, but he also immediately identifies that these are orcs of the White Hand, or Urukai of the White Hand, he never actually clarifies, but anyway, these are Saruman's forces one way or the other, and then it jumps straight from that to Eowyn and Wormtongue. Several characters are introduced basically, bam, 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 as we start to understand more of Rohan, because a lot of the second film is centered around Rohan, and a lot of the third film centered around Gondor, so that makes a degree of sense. Denethor technically isn't really introduced until the third film, even though he has a scene here, but I digress. So Eowyn is introduced, and it's such a shame that Grima Wormtongue is so uh, obviously evil, because I actually feel that he's got some interesting shadings to him. I may be biased on that, because it's Brad Dorif, and Brad Dorif is awesome, but he is a good enough nuanced actor to be able to portray someone who is just the right, just the right balance here of being... Uh, he's evil, of course, he's slimy, he's creepy, but he's also conflicted, and he has, he, he, he deliberately uses 
uh, shall we say, high dollar value words. His syllabic count is quite high. And he does, and it, it kind of helps to emphasize the nature of the character just in the way he speaks. The very sentence structure he utilizes helps to emphasize his character. And there are a couple of scenes, I think literally two, which show him as a more sympathetic light, showing the man that, that is underneath all of this, this filth, basically. It's a weird thing, but Brad Dorff pulls it off quite well. Um, and uh, I also have a, I have a question. Well, okay, before I go forward, he also has a great statement. He says, you know, Saruman the White has ever been our friend and ally. Now, obviously, the reality that Aomer has brought, you know, the White Hand helmet, that's kind of hard to ignore. But at the same time, it kind of is. Think about this for a moment. Saruman has been their ally probably for decades on the on the low side. Probably a lot longer than that, really. It, it depends on how long you consider him a, a political, you know, a advisor sort of a role for Rohan. I am not actually sure, and they don't say in the movie, and I know books. So, one way or the other, he's someone who is very well established as a friend of Rohan. Then Aomer drops the thing on it, and the only thing Grima can think to do, he actually pauses for a moment to think about it. He finally says, nah, you're banished. So, first of all, I like the fact that he was banished already. Like, he was already ready to be banished. Um, and, I, and I like that because it's funny in that it serves Saruman's purpose, but it serves Grima's purposes more. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. See... I mentioned Brad Dorff manages a variety of things, but the thing that I really like most about him is he comes off as conflicted on more than one times, but also very, I don't want to say selfish, because that's usually, when I say selfish, I usually mean selfish in a fairly negative light. What I mean is he demonstrates significant self-interest. He has what he wants, and he wants it. And in this case, he wants Eowyn. And you could tell he wants a few other things, too. He clearly enjoys his position. And he is the kind of person who... Well, he's kind of a Krennic character. And yeah, I, I, so, okay, I should explain that really quick, because that's, that's a brand new term. This is actually the first time you're ever hearing me say that. Uh, Director Krennic from Star Wars Rogue One is a small fish in a big pond who thinks he's a big fish. And it was, it was a very well done thing, and that was pretty much Krennic's character arc summarized in a single sentence. So Grima is a Krennic. He is very clearly a small fish who wants to be a big fish. And he demonstrates this on the way he acts in so many different scenes. Anytime he has any kind of authority or feels confident, he's, he's like, ha The moment it goes away, he literally goes into like a wilt. He physically cringes away the moment he loses that authority, the moment he is actually threatened. Because he's a small fish. Given how recently Saruman has switched sides, although that's debatable, thanks to what I'm about to bring up, I wonder how long Theoden has been dissolving into this aged, decrepit man. As we see in this film, when that is reverted, he looks fine. He, he looks like he lost like 30 years, or more, actually. So, it makes me wonder how quickly he, di he dissolved into this. Or, and this is a much more unpleasant thought, maybe Saruman switched sides quite a while ago. We do know, again, purely within the confines of the movie-verse, that Saruman was on our side during the Hobbit trilogy. However, slight spoiler if you haven't seen the third Hobbit movie, we also know that in the third Hobbit movie, Saruman goes off on the mission that will end up turning him to Sauron's side. Ergo, 
that's pretty much the gap of time we have for when Saruman would have been, would have changed paymasters and shifted to the the side of evil. So again, I wonder how long exactly he has been switched, and how long he has been poisoning poor Theoden. So I mentioned uh, something earlier. This whole thing, this whole nature with Theoden, Saruman hits the nail right on the head. This again goes back to that whole nature of men thing. The fact that they strong unified, but they need strong individuals, strong leaders, strong you know group mentality. Otherwise, they are weak individually. Saruman knew that if he paralyzes Theoden, he basically paralyzes Rohan, and he succeeded at it. All he needed to do was basically go after one guy, hire off a few other people with some baubles, and win. I mention this, though, because it is... The film also starts to bring up the concept of exceptions. Now, obviously, Aragorn is an exception, but he's a king, and in many ways he's already acted like a king. But Eomer is actually an exception as well, who is clearly not a king. He is, in fact, not a leader in any traditional sense of the word other than, like, a squad leader. He is a soldier. He is someone who's, whose place is on the front lines fighting. And yet he is still an exception in the fact that he is willing to take action and act of his own independent thought, regardless of the group, regardless of a strong leader, etc. He is loyal to Rohan, not to Theoden, to put it into other terms. I bring that up because I make it... I, I find it interesting that... Grima probably had him banished so that he could get to Eowyn. But Grima probably got away with that because he, as an exception, was a threat to fake Theoden's rule by being an exception, someone who could actually challenge a king and get away with it. So the scene between the Orcs and the Urukai is actually great, almost lost my notes, <laughs> is great. And I mean that sincerely, because it shows so clearly the distinction between the two and helps to establish something that really makes the, a later point stronger. The orcs are wild and ravaged, killed, no, you know, whatever. They're, they're basically just a ravaging force that destroys whatever in their path. The only way Sauron gets away with what he does is because he's Sauron. Excuse me, and the fact that he's got a lot of them. You know, they are the, the low-level rabble kind of troops. They're not that good in a fight. They're not that durable. They're not that skilled, and they don't, they don't have that good of gear. But there are a lot of them, and he breeds them by the tens of thousands back in Mordor. That is in total contrast to the Urukai, who are literally the exact opposite. There's far fewer of them. They are far stronger, far more disciplined, far more better equipped, far better, you know, just, they're better in every way. And this is especially hammered point because the orcs are okay with disobeying orders, you know, if it suits them. The Urukai are not. Even when there is no one there to enforce it, the Urukai are loyal, whereas the orcs, with no one there to enforce it, do whatever. This is actually something that's been touched on, if you think about it, before now, with the goblins all the way in Moria. Now, I know, there's the whole, you know, Lord of Caves situation. Let's not get into that. My point being, those guys weren't actually directly under Sauron's control, were they? They were just there. Again, speaking with the movie's perspective here. Because that's just a large herd of goblins and, and orcs and whatever else that just happened to be over there, and once they were out of direct control of Sauron, they just did whatever. Because that's kind of what orcs do. However, the Urukai under that situation would have stayed loyal to Saruman and be able to report back in and served as a functional uh, pro uh, colony, I guess is the word I want to use there, of, of Saruman. 
I mentioned that as well, and not only will that come out in a big way later, but it helps to differentiate both Saruman and Sauron, and it helps to emphasize yet again why Saruman is such a dangerous threat. Basically, we don't really fight Sauron at all, with, with like a very few exceptions in this movie. This is all about Isengard and all about Saruman. So a lot more effort is done to establish him, the nature of his threat, and his forces in this film. So I have a note here. There's a couple of fake-outs in this movie. There's a lot of de character death fake-outs, actually. I'll talk about the Aragorn one later, but here we have one. Oh my god, the hobbits are dead. It's cheap. <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of that Return of the Jai thing again. It's like, ugh. Okay, yep, they're, they're totally dead. There's a bit where Legolas mentions that a red sun rises. Blood has been spilled. And I like that because it's not going to pay off until the third movie. But it's something that will pay off, in my opinion, in a fairly awesome way when we get to the third movie. So just keep that line in the back of your mind. Remember it for when you get to Return of the King. And I'm sure a lot of you who've seen Return of the King already know what I'm talking about, of course. So Eomer is still an uncertain quantity. Again, very aggressive. He, he approaches them with weapons, and then he says, Who are you? And then they say, well, We are friends of King. And so he seems to cool down a bit, takes off his helmet, which means everyone, you know, they withdraw their weapons. But then he accuses them of being spies. And he seems to... It, I get the impression from Eomer that he just doesn't know what to do with himself, because he is, as much as he is an exception, he's not a leader. He doesn't know how to lead these Rohirrim. He's basically just picked a direction and going. There's no plan. There's no goal. If not for Gandalf coming and getting him, they might have just roamed forever. So he's just, like, picking whatever and doing whatever in hopes of something sticking. It, the thing that finally gets his attention is when they're talking about the Urukai they were tracking. And he says, well, we killed them in the night. And then Gimli rushes up and is like, there were there hobbits. There were two hobbits with them. And then, and then Aragorn is like, yeah, they would look just like children to your eyes. Notice his reaction to that. That's when Aomer finally switches over and we firmly realize, okay, he's an ally. He's a good guy. Because his reaction to that is, oh, he understands their sincerity, recognizes that they're not an enemy, and in fact does something that has significant import. Admittedly, it has more import if you consider the books and the greater works, but even within the confines of the movies, he gives them two Rohan horses, two war horses. Think about that. Horses are kind of valuable in general. These are former military Rohirrim horses of the horse lords of Rohan that he gives to them as a gift. I mention that because it helps to emphasize how much that strikes Aomer, that he realizes, oh god, I may have accidentally killed their friends. It's a nice touch. And it's interesting that Aomer fully admits that in the dead of night... In the middle of bloodlust, they may have killed innocent civilians. He doesn't feel particularly happy about that, but he fully acknowledges it at a point. He mentions later the reality of war, you know, when the battle and the fear and the blood takes him, that kind of a thing. I mention this because I think, again, as a soldier, Aomer has a great deal of perspective on what war really is like, or what battle is really is like. Doesn't mean he likes it, though. Um, I, there's also a great scene where Legolas defends Gimli. I mentioned their friendship is something that kind of slowly builds. It, it actually slowly builds across all three films in the films. But there's it is a great scene to have him just suddenly defend Gimli like he will die if you touch that dwarf. And Gimli himself is like, whoa. <laughs> so, 
It's the first time, when they go and discover the body pile and they discover the little belt, it's the first time Aomer finally drops his mask. He's had this mask on for well, since about halfway through the first movie, actually. It's like, Gong! not letting his emotions show. The only person he really let his emotions show to was Arwen. Everyone else, he's like, Gong! gotta be the leader, gotta be the captain, gotta be the leader, gotta be the captain. And there's a couple of exceptions to that, to Frodo, to Boromir. But otherwise, it's, it's the leader... And then he sees this, and it just crumbles. The mask just crumbles into ash, and he just literally falls to his knees in agony. And yes, I know, there's some literal agony involved there, too, because he broke his frickin' toe. But yeah, you know, oh, God. And it's powerful, specifically because he's been keeping it all bottled up up until this point in time. I like the tracking, too. It's some good directing, because we see the actual result. We see what he's using... As, as information, he's not just saying that this happened. He, he says their bonds were cut, and then he lifts up the cut bonds. He says they tracked here, and their hands were bound, and he shows, we see the, the actual thing. So we can see what he's tracking for the most part. And then the scene cu- cuts back to the past, and we see what actually happened, showcasing how correct he was. And I like that. So, of course, Mary knows about tree herders, but Treebeard hasn't heard of hobbits. I was glad to see uh, John Rice Davies in the movie twice, though. <laughs> Um, I don't have a lot to say about Treebeard. He is... He is exactly what I would picture when I think of the word Ent. When I think of an Ent as a creature, I picture a big, lumbering, very patient, very slow kind of individual who is slow to anger, but, you know, kind of considerate. I, I mean, the idea of Entish poetry actually appeals to me tremendously. I like the idea. I don't know if this is true or not, and maybe the books go into this. I actually don't remember. But I like the idea of an ant spending days or, or, or weeks just thinking of the next word to go into a poem, spending that much time and commitment on really doing something. You know, you got to do it just the right way. It just seems very entish to me. But I don't actually have much else to say about the ants uh, until we get to later, so moving on. So I have a note here that says, I wonder why elven food is poisonous to Gollum, or at least he just doesn't like it. And in hindsight, that actually makes perfect sense, because Gollum has been poisoned for, what, 500 years by this thing. It makes sense that this thing, which has supplanted, and in in many ways, his literal nutrients with the poisonous magic that it exudes, just like it did with Bilbo, that he has slowly gotten to the point now where more normal food is unappealing, like what uh, Sam offers him later. Well, I shouldn't say offers him, but you know, what Sam cooks later. Or something actually made by the elves, which is literally magical food, except from the other side of the spectrum. So, you know, makes perfect sense. So then we go to the Dead Marshes. I like that scene, not just because it's creepy as hell, but because it makes sense to me that Frodo would be drawn to the dead there. Because he's got two reasons to do so, if you think about it. One is this. If you can't tell, by the way, this is a black and silver tungsten uh, one ring. I'm very fond of it. So, he's got this, which already gives him some connection to the spirit realm. He's also got this, the wound that nearly put him into the spirit realm, partially merged him into the spirit realm, and has left him with a connection with it ever since. It actually comes up later when the uh, the fell beast flies overhead. So it makes sense to me that he would be drawn to them when neither of the others really would. 
Pay attention to something, by the way. Notice how Schmeagol had a perfect opportunity to take the ring from Frodo. And he could have just taken it and gotten away. They, they never would have gotten him back for that. But he doesn't. He doesn't even try, actually. He stays loyal. I want you to think about that, because in my opinion, actions like that help to establish Schmeagol versus Gollum. And it'll be relevant because Schmeagol has his own character arc throughout this and the next film. Where was I? Uh, Dead Marshes, Dead Marshes. Uh, I have a note here. Poor Schmeagol. Uh, I do have a question, though. I, I love this film, but why, do, why does a Nazgul and a Felbeast just suddenly patrol the Dead Marshes? There's nothing there. And it doesn't look like he's particularly going anywhere. It just looks like he's on, he's on patrol. He's looking for it. If he thinks he felt the ring there, why doesn't he keep looking? Because if the ring's there, it's not going anywhere anytime soon, so he should just keep looking until he finds it. I, I just bring it up because I feel like the only reason it was done was to establish the fell beasts for the later scene, so we would know what they are. <sighs> By the way, I really like how they present the fell beasts in the movies. It's a really good presentation, the kind of pseudo-serpent dragon thing. I like it. <sighs> so, again, so, okay... The white wizard scene. I will leave you with the white wizard. Oh, my God. They do some really good voice stuff. Uh, they actually manage to get the same pitch and tone of Ian McKellen and uh, Christopher Lee with very, very few variants. So they say their lines at the same time. So apparently they did several takes to make this just so and combined their to words. And if you listen to it, the, the tone of which voice is more dominant actually shifts back and forth a little bit as they're talking. It's a nice touch. When I very first saw this film, I actually thought it was just Christopher Lee doing the voice, and then Ian McKellen stands forward and is now Gandalf the White. So, I have a theory. Now, I know the books help go into this significantly more, but again, we're just looking at this, the films. I think that when Gandalf was stamped with the White Wizard template and shoved back onto Middle-earth, I think he didn't have much of his original self there. And I think that was why he was the White Wizard and why he uh, sounded so much like, uh, Lee, like, like Christopher Lee, like Saruman. And then as he is recognized by people who were his friends, who start talking to him and calling him Gandalf, he's like, yes, that's right, I was Gandalf. And if you pay attention over several scenes, over the next several scenes with Gandalf in them, he starts to kind of comment more and more about things that he was and things that he used to do. There's even a great scene in Return of the King, forgive me for jumping ahead here, where he's trying to smoke, something that Gandalf the Grey did all the time, and he can't. He's, he's choking on it. It's like, this isn't working because my body isn't used to this. You know, my theory is that there's there's one of two ways of looking at this. Either Gandalf the White slowly merges with Gandalf the Grey. In other words, all the potential of what Saruman should have been mixed with all of what Gr Gandalf the Grey was, or that Gandalf the White has all of the power of the White and slowly reverts to being Gandalf the Grey up here. Either one works, but I like both theories, and both kind of lead to the same result. Uh, I mentioned the end poetry thing already. Sauron fears the unified men thing. Uh, it's it's nice. Uh, I like it. It 
I mentioned the whole the nature of what men can do. It's also uh, interesting to me because thanks to Saruman's aid, he is basically inches from winning as of, as of this point in the film. And there's very little that can actually oppose him. As we will see later, there are quite a few men who are loyal to Sauron. At least two different groups that we see who are marching to Sauron's war drums. And that's relevant, I think, because I keep comparing the men to orcs. Uh, obviously, there's some very significant differences between the two, but both are unified in the fact that when they are a conglomerate, they, they do much better than just about anyone else can. And Sauron himself is a unified, strong leader for a lot of these men, which is probably why he fears so much losing these men to someone else, like Aragorn, because if Gondor and Rohan were unified, well, that would present a hell of a unified front, and he knows exactly how unified fronts work, because he uses them all the time with both his orcs and his, uh... They actually have a name, and I can't think of it right now. It's from the books. There's a whole thing about the Eastern Kingdoms and how... Like, we, we, uh, to my knowledge, we don't know exactly what the idea was, but, you know, it's basically under Sauron's control already, you know, all that fun stuff. It's clear one way or another, even in the confines of the movies, that Sauron understands the value of the unification of men, both on his own side and as his opposition. And then we get to the Black Gate. Uh, I like the Black Gate. It emphasizes Sauron's overall strategic approach, which I mentioned earlier with regards to the orcs versus the Urukai. It's giant... It's made of metal. It requires trolls to move it. It's about as blunt as it freaking gets. And it's just a giant freaking gate with spikes on it. It is very Sauron. Very blunt. No subtlety whatsoever. Uh, I like the cloaks they have. I, I, I've actually wondered something for a while. I really do wonder what would have happened if they had gone ahead and gone through that gate if it would be possible for them, when basically no one was looking for them, or even knew they were near there, to be able to make it to Mount Doom undetected. I'm, I'm really not sure, actually. I mean, they all say, oh, we would be detected instantly, but nobody's looking for them, and they know how to hide, and they have the, you know, the, the cloaks again, and just, I don't, I don't know. It's just food for thought. I do want to say one thing, though. Gollum mentions, excuse me, Smeagol, I want to be more clear about that. Smeagol mentions how Frodo just wants the ring to take the ring back to Sauron. I mention that because this is, I think, probably the one scene where Sam's preference towards Frodo and antithesis towards Smeagol actually makes sense from a character perspective. Because, of course, he's going to agree with whatever Frodo says. Frodo's his friend, and Smeagol's this other guy who tried to kill them. Screw him. Okay, that makes sense in this context. It is also tragically ironic because I think Smeagol was right. I think Frodo, will, knowingly or otherwise, willingly or otherwise, was taking the ring back. Not to destroy it, just taking it right back into the hands of the enemy. And I think that's actually what was happening there. And that's why Gollum was like, no, you can't do that. And notice how Smeagol and Gollum are unified on that. We can't let him have it. So even though Gollum wants the ring for himself... Both Gollum and Smeagol are willing to aid Frodo in bypassing this to ensure the ring doesn't go back to Sauron. I mean, then Smeagol would never get the ring back, right? I will say, however, that Smeagol is not completely innocent in this because he mentions there's a, you know, there's a path, stairs, a tunnel. He knows Shelob is there. He demonstrates clearly that Shelob is there 
in this movie, most especially in the next one. He goes out of his way not to mention her. Think about that. So I like the idea of magically nourishing water. The water that literally just you drink it and it provides life. It provides food, it provides resources, and it helps you to grow. Uh, it's something I actually like over in Warcraft as well. The Night Elves have something similar with this particularly arcanely enchanted, or nature-enchanted uh, water that they use. And I like that idea. I admit I've used the idea several times. It's a nice touch, too, in the scene there, where both Merry and Pippin... I keep saying mop on my notes. It's actually M and P. But the end looks like an O, so I'm like, Mop? Oh yeah, Merry and Pippin. I like the idea that Merry and Pippin still don't really fully get how dangerous of a situation they are. They've let themselves let their guard down a bit. Because, you know, they've got the ant, and they're, you know, they met Gandalf, and they're, they're in a safe haven now. And they forget the fact that several people were freaking terrified of Fangorn Forest. That several people were like, no, we don't want to go in there. I mean, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli were like, oh god, do we have to go into Fangorn? Think about that. So they allow themselves to let go and not really understand, and they nearly frickin' die. The best part is, they nearly died over nothing. It's a nice way to help emphasize the point that the things are still quite dangerous. Uh, quick point. So, they mentioned the Entwives, and how they've lost them. There's, uh, this is completely unrelated to the movies, I just wanted to bring this up, because there's been a theory that I've heard several times circulating around that the, the river maidens, basically, are the Entwives, like uh, Goldberry. I think. Yes, Goldberry, that's right. You know, the one that Tom Bombadil, you know, captured. Um, and maybe that's actually what the Entwives are. I just posit it because it's the only thing I've heard that is actually close to a theory of significance. If anybody else has any, any other information, please feel free to share. I, I'm just curious. So Grima clearly understands. He's a very perceptive person. And he clearly understands his prey in this case, which is Eowyn. I hate to say that. That actually sounds horrible that he calls her a prey. But it kind of is the truth. He understands her, and all of his words cut straight to the core of what she is. It's funny, because Grima actually establishes Eowyn's character arc. But I'll talk a little bit more about that later. The symbology, symbolism, excuse me, of what happens next is so blatant, it's almost, it's almost kind of, wow, okay. Because she rushes out of the keep, but she can't go any further, because she's bound. And then she sees the party, and then the banner flies free, and lands at Aragorn's feet. I mean, it's so blunt, and it's so overt, that I found myself going, oh my god, really? And of course, she is going to be completely head over heels, falling for Aragorn. And I don't really blame her. It's Viggo Mortensen, and it's Aragorn. So, I mean, you know. I mean, I'm not into guys, uh, but even I can understand the allure and appeal of that particular character there. Especially when she finds out that he's, you know, got the old age thing going on, as in the lives longer thing, I mean. So I love the tone when they're going through Edoras. It's really nice. They already established, they've done really good stuff with establishing tone of each major location and settlement they go to. Edoras feels like a grave. I think uh, Gimli actually flat out says, you know, all the cheer of a grave or something like that, but that is what it feels like. It feels very quiet, very still. People don't want to move. People don't want to draw attention to themselves. There's no laughing. There's no talking. It's really, really messed up. And it really helps to, to hammer in the point of just how bad Rohan has gotten. It gives me, if I was to visualize Rohan 
as a person, it, vis it gives me the impression of someone who is physically desiccated to the point of barely being able to move. Which, I mean, that brings us to the next scene, Theoden. Uh, notice how Grima acts, by the way. You know, he's confident. <laughs> and he, you know, he dances his words around Gandalf. Gandalf brandishes the weapon. He immediately shrinks. Again, it's that it's that Krennic thing. He's a, he's a director Krennic character. But then the the really interesting and funny part about that that scene, regardless of Grima, is the fact that they all disarmed except for the staff, and then they proceed to beat the living snot out of the guards unarmed. It was a nice way to help emphasize how badass they are and how capable and far more capable they are than the average guard thing. I do actually like that, even though it is a little bit over the top. The character shields of the main characters in The Lord of the Rings, all six movies actually, are, are insane. The amount of stuff they go through with and, and just survive it. But it, it leads to some good scenes like this one. Also, I want you to pay attention during that scene, because you'll notice there's the few guards that were basically paid and bought by Grima, probably thanks to money he got from Saruman. And then there's the rest of the court. They knock out like six or seven guys, and then there's like 20 or so left. I point that out because it's a very nice, very subtle touch. It, it says the obvious, of course, that not everyone was loyal to Grima, they were just afraid, and that, you know, plenty of people are still loyal to Theoden and to the concept of Rohan. The subtle point, though, is it helps to emphasize both of the undercurrent themes I've mentioned. The theme about men how they can accomplish things when they are strong, they just have to have a leader to get them there, and the theme about the one in a million hope, the fool's hope, and the fact that these people, if they had actually, they are willing to give into this fool's hope of maybe we can get our king back, you know, and I don't want to be part of this crap anymore. So Gandalf beats Saruman, and he beats him in a one-on-one -on -one fight, just bam! And it's great. It's a great scene. And skipping forward in my notes a little bit, there's a bit later where Saruman is reacting to the fight. And he's like, Saruman the... Gandalf the White. Gandalf the Fool. It's very petty. And actually, I, I'm not going to say badly written, but it's not a good comeback. And that's the point. Saruman the Wise is so flustered by this, he's lost for words. And he's visibly upset at the situation, visibly upset that there is someone else out there who can directly challenge him. Remember, Saruman was not only feeling safe thanks to his alliance, but was getting kind of cozy with his power. Now both have just been threatened. And now he's like, no. So I want to give praise to Bernard Hill. I haven't really seen him in much of anything else. But he nails Theoden. He is Theoden, as far as I'm concerned, and he really does just absolutely nail the role. Fantastic job. So, Theoden, the very first thing he does is he is he grasps for his he grasps his sword, and then he goes after Grima. First thing he does. I have a note here that says, "Why does Aragorn let Grima go?" And then I have a little parenthesis, which usually means if I have any further thoughts later, I'll go back and add them. But I never added further thoughts. I never came up with a good reason why Aragorn had Grima spared. Now, it could be that whole fate thing again, or maybe because of the fact that he believed, you know, maybe they could turn him back to their side. I don't know. Whether that turned out in the end is going to be a little more debatable. Lord knows he's kind of responsible for certain things in the movies. But I find it very, very questionable that he did that. Regardless, 
The second thing Theoden does after kicking the living crap out of Grima is he asks about his son. I have no jokes or witty banter or interesting insights. Theoden himself says it brilliantly. No parent should have to bury their own child. It's horrible. The end. And then, having dealt with Grima, the betrayer, having buried his son, the very next thing that happens is those children on the horse show up. And now Theoden gets what we, the audience, get at the same time. The up-close-and-personal realization of exactly what's happening to his kingdom. And he can't deal with it. This is the beginning of Theoden's character arc, and he has one, too, that will go through this and the next movie. The rising up to be a king. Make no mistake, Theoden has the potential to be a king, but, and it actually makes a lot of sense to me, I don't want to put him down, but he makes several very weak decisions here, and he makes them out of a degree of fear, and out of weariness, and out of despair. See, so many characters have been rotating between despair and hope, and it's helped to explain so many character motivations. Saruman being in despair, Boromir fighting against despair, Gandalf clinging to fool's hope, you know, all that. Theoden begins in despair. He comes out of that coma of just, ugh, and he is already in despair. And it will take effort and the, and the aid of many of those around him to drag himself out of that despair. I know this happens later, but I want you to think about Theoden's face when the elves show up at Helm's Deep. He's in shock. Not just because of this aid, but the very idea that someone would come to help him was alien to him. It was something that he rejected outright when he mentioned Aragorn. Who will come to our aid? Well, the elves will. Or the rangers, if you read the books. <laughs> I'll talk about that later. But it, it, it so helps to showcase where he's at. And why he's basically already given up. He's, he's just been released and now uh, there's no point in fighting. So they make a lot of mistakes. He makes a lot of mistakes. Let me go ahead and say that even though the situation was not linear, his decision to retreat to Helm's Deep was basically a mistake. And if for no other reason, it's because he did it for the wrong reasons. He did it because he was running scared and because he believed they'd already lost. In other words, it was, it was a failure. It was a loss. And he was thinking of it as a loss. He told his people it wasn't. But at every step of the way, it's clear he is thinking of this as a, a loss. We are retreating. Now, things did end up working out, but not because of him. Gandalf shows that uh, in-the-moment knowledge thing I mentioned in the last film thing, and this as well. You know, look in, in four days' time, at first dawn's light, look to the east. I, I, again, I get the impression those just kind of come to him in the moment. He's not even 100% sure what is going to be there. It's just, that's the time. If I'm going to make it, that's the time I'm going to be there. <sighs> ah, and there's actually the quote. No, this is not a defeat. We'll re we will return. We will return. Except, again, he's trying to convince himself. Then Eowyn has a pretty good scene with Aragorn, and I mentioned this earlier. This is when Eowyn confirms all of Grima's analyses of her. While he used fairly nice words, fairly complex words for the language to explain her situation, she has a brilliant quote, which I've decided to write down because it is an amazing quote. She is afraid to stay behind bars until old age accept them, and all chance of valor are beyond recall or desire. Or excuse me, has gone beyond recall or desire. It's a great quote. 
And it pretty much emphasizes her characterization in one line, and where she's going to be going with her character. At several points in the future, she will be asked to do something that she will perceive as a slight against her character, being tossed into the bars. I say she perceived because in both cases in this movie, it's not that at all. But I'll get to those. Uh, there's a great scene where Sam and Frodo are discussing Gollum, or Smeagol, if you will. And Frodo says, I want to help him, Sam. And Sam says, why? And then Frodo hesitates. I actually wrote in my own answer there, because what I think Frodo's actually answer is, is because I am afraid that that is what I will become. And his actual answer, I have to believe that he can come back, therefore says, I have to believe I can come back, that there is hope for Frodo in addition to Schmeagol. The, th the, the Gollum and Schmeagol discussion is gold. I don't have much to add to it. The back and forth is fantastic. Um, I like the chain of logic that Smeagol uses in order to banish Gollum. Well, regardless of friendship or morality or ethics or doing the right thing or anything, I've always needed someone to protect me, and that someone has been Gollum. But now i got this guy to protect me, so piss off. It's a nice little chain of logic, and it helps to get rid of someone he has hated, and this was even mentioned in the first film, for some time, his other half. Uh... <laughs> More men show up. Oliphants show up. The Oliphants are cool. We'll see those more in the third film. Uh, it is a small irony that something like a hobbit, who consider food to be an art form and a del and something that they put a lot of time and effort into crafting, could devolve into someone who prefers raw and wriggling fish. Schmeagol then abandons them. Just keep that in your mind for later. I've got some notes about Faramir, but we're actually going to skip forward just a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about Faramir later. So, there's a scene where uh, Aragorn dreams he is with Arwen, and there's also a flashback pretty much attached right to that. The dream and the flashback are distinct. There's no need to separate, uh, you know, to further separate those. What I have a question for you is, due to the pseudo-magical nature of this setting in general, Aragorn himself being a semi-magical person, and Arwen being a fairly magical person, do you think that was actually them connecting in their dreams together, or was he literally just dreaming of her? Elrond gives his vision of the future to Arwen. Now, I find that interesting, because he gives this vision of the future of him being this great and amazing king, and of her being his wife forever, and he does that as a vision, as something he has foreseen, as he has the gift of sight, just like Galadriel does. I mention that because Arwen takes that as face value, not realizing what he's saying. He says, there's nothing for you here, only death. And yet what he's saying is, don't worry, you'll succeed, and you'll beat Sauron, and everything will be fine. Because that's what has to happen for that vision to come to pass, as indeed is what actually ends up being the case, to some extent or another. Of course, that'll be that'll be carried forward uh, in Return of the King. It has been mentioned before uh, by several people that this is the one thing that doesn't quite fit the overall tonal theme of Two Towers, and maybe should have either been shifted to Return of the King or have it concluded in Two Towers, because Arwen's story arc is actually just just stops. 
Hers is then continued in Return of the King and, and concludes in Return of the King. But here it just kind of stops and is left unresolved, whereas most of, the, most of the other concurrent threads on a medium scale from a character perspective are actually concluded on that theme of hope, the fool's hope thing, which is very, very much ha hammered in in this uh, I almost said episode in this movie. I am getting tired, forgive me. So there's the first time that Eowyn is given command. He says, lead these people, lead them for me, take them back and get them there. I love it because it, it, she, of course, sees it as a slight. No, I, I want to be up and fight. He's not thinking that way, though. He's thinking, I'm going out and we're probably about to die. I want you to live, and I trust you enough to get these people to safety. It's interesting, the two perspectives there, because he's not, at least deliberately, putting her in a cage. So then there's the battle. And they fight, and they fight, and they fight, and they fight. I already mentioned the Gimli thing. Some badassery. So I, I have a note here. Why the Aragorn thing? Why the fake death with Aragorn? Yeah. And I have a note here. All it does is further way down the narrative and have Theoden uh, move further towards despair and have Eowyn be more infatuated with him. But I have another note here because it occurred to me as I was going further in the film that there was a narrative reason for that. A weird narrative reason, but a narrative reason nonetheless. See... <laughs> Arwen basically saves Aragorn's life, and it is implied that the elven grace she has passes to him, which is what saves his life. So that's relevant for later. And, and this is actually more important for the immediacy, because he was separate from the group, he provides the critical intel. He is the one who sees the host of Isengard, and therefore is able to come and warn them of what's coming. If not for that, they probably wouldn't have been nearly as holed up as they were, and certainly not as quickly as they needed to be. So, I mean, Helm's Deep might have been much, much worse if Aragorn hadn't died. So I'm willing to give them a pass on it. There's an amazing series of, of scenes where the, there's the, oh my god, there's shots of the normal people, the people in Helm's Deep. There's shots of the mother this is actually skipping forward a little bit it's kind of over the next several scenes but there's scenes where you know mothers have to let their kids go off or let their old people and there's there's wounded and they're sick and there's literally children just just freaking teenagers being armed and put into armor and whatnot it's a very powerful scene and for most of it there's not even any sound it's just the music playing it's very powerful stuff and it helps to emphasize that this is not an army that Theoden has here this is a ragtag group of skirmishers at best who do not know what they're doing. He is screwed. And it helps to really hammer in just how terrible things are. How despairing things are, if you will. Don't mistake me. Helm's Deep is very defensible. It is insanely defensible. The problem is, again, not only is this a defeat in mentality, but Saruman, he, he, he didn't even stop to consider what Saruman had on his side. Because Saruman has three advantages over him. One, a huge elite army. Remember that point I made earlier about differentiating the Urukai versus the orcs? There's a scene where the camera goes out and all of a sudden there is a 10,000 strong army of Urukai. And in that moment, it, Grima actually sheds a tear because he is just blown away and in shock and horror at what he's seeing. But it's a very powerful moment for the audience, too, because it has already been emphasized to us in the previous movie and in the earlier scenes that the Urukai are the elite. They're the, they're the really good ones. And now there's 10,000. 
freaking thousand of them down there. So that's his first advantage. His second advantage is Grima Wormtongue. And his third advantage is freaking explosives, which has also been hinted at because of the fireworks thing. And all three of these advantages are hammered in in the same scene, just to make it absolutely clear that they are screwed at Helm's Deep. So as of that moment, Helm's Deep has no chance whatsoever of survival. None. That leads to a great scene with Galadriel. I mentioned the Arwen thing. Galadriel talks to Elrond and basically hammers him with reality. She says, look, right now Sauron is not fighting a two-front war. He has differentiated the two. He has divided his enemy. And he no longer has to deal with that. So he has got his puppet dealing with Rohan, and if Rohan falls, that's the end. Because Rohan and Gondor united are going to be needed to face Mordor. So he's winning. And Galadriel basically hits him right over the head with, do we make them face this alone? We're done. The time of the elves is done. The only question now is, what do we do on our way out? And this is why I like it more personally, just my opinion, that it's the elves who help at Helm's Deep and not the rangers. I mean, granted, the rangers basically aren't in the movie. Like, I mean, they mention Strider as a ranger, and that's about the extent of it. And I like the rangers quite a lot, especially in Babylon 5. But I think thematically, and for the purposes of binding the, the peoples together and honoring the old allegiances and that theme of this disparate groups you know unifying and accomplishing something more you know the mass effect kind of thing going on that i think the elves fit better for this kind of a role than the rangers do just my opinion also and i have a note here about this but i already talked about it the elves of course are the first sign of shock or excuse me the first sign of hope it's like oh my god now we have an actual fighting chance. We have allies who are skilled, who are just as elite as those Urukai. Much more elite, actually. One elf is worth several of those Urukai. And they have come to help us. Look at Theoden's face. He's in shock. I mean, I already talked about this. He is in utter shock. I love it. He can't even comprehend this. Aragorn is so overcome, he hugs an elf. Knowing just what a social faux pas that... Because he knows. He knows elven customs. And it's a huge social faux pas. He can't bring himself. He just, oh, God, thank God you're here. Oh my god, okay, yeah, sorry, sorry. It's a great scene. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's talk about Faramir before we get to Helm's Deep proper. Helm's Deep controls like the last half hour of the film. So Faramir. Faramir enters the film and is immediately shown to be a thinker, a little bit of a philosopher, if you will. He talks about this guy, you know, maybe he wanted to stay home at peace. What lies or threats were used to cause him to come out here? War will make corpses of us all. It, it, it just kind of helps to emphasize how different of a character he is, and it helps to establish his characterization, relevant from everyone else. Excuse me. Then, of course, he's clever. He thinks his way around things. It's interesting because the only thing Frodo actually lies to Faramir about is Gollum, which I find interesting in its own right. I'm not really sure why he does that, other than to set up future things. And then there's this great deleted scene. The deleted scene is something I actually referenced many times back in the first film, because it is critical to help understanding Boromir as a character. Also helps to establish Denethor 
Faramir, and the dynamic between all three. Denethor, so even within the confines of this one scene, we understand a lot of these characters as is. Denethor blames Faramir for the losses and, and looks down upon him constantly. I know his, his uses and he has few. He's talking about his son there. Keeping in mind, he also allowed Faramir to have hardly any forces to defend off Skiliath, and that's probably why he fell. And yet, as we have already shown, with hardly any forces at his command, he has been waging a very effective guerrilla campaign against the much larger armies of Mordor. So it's not tactical incompetence on, on behalf of Faramir, and we're shown that. So Denethor is an idiot who is biased against Faramir and towards Boromir. Boromir and Faramir both like each other and love each other. They're, they're buddies. They're good. They're, cl they're close. And um, Boromir stands up for Faramir. And Faramir wants to, to, to be liked by his father. He's got a pretty typical daddy issue situation. He is not loved, or he does not feel loved by his father. And, you know, that's, that's a, part, a strong part of his character, too. Arguably the biggest reason... This is funny when you think about it. Arguably the biggest reason that he ends up wanting to bring the ring back is to please his dad. I, t I put that out there in contrast to Boromir, whose biggest reason for wanting to bring it back was not to please his dad, but was to save his people. Remember, that was a big thing for Boromir? You know, tell him Faramir sends a kingly gift. Think about it. The, uh... What else I got here? Uh, the weight upon Boromir is obvious. The quiet truth of the burden he has. Uh, note that at this point in time, again, keeping with that overall theme of despair and hope, that Denethor is already in a place of despair. He already believes it's over. And he pretty much imparts upon Boromir that despair in that scene. Boromir was, Yes, we did this great victory. This is fantastic. And then afterwards, you know, remember day, brother. Today life is good. Denethor basically poisoned his own son with despair and inflicted upon him the idea that the only way we could ever survive and win is if we have the one ring in order to do it with. So then Frodo betrays Smeagol to save him. And Smeagol is brutalized, just beaten. Oh, it's horrible. And then Faramir puts two and two together very quickly, and is like, aha, I can get the ring. Do note that up until this point, Faramir is, with one exception, being universally portrayed as a bad guy. If you've never read the books and never seen the movies, up to this point, you would be forgiven if you were presuming Faramir was one of the enemies, one of the antagonists, because he kind of is. I'll get more into that later, because then Helm's Deep interrupts. We'll get back to the Faramir stuff later. So, Helm's Deep's amazing. Beautiful build-up. Again, um, they're really good at the build-up in these movies. They're just beautiful establishment, beautiful battle. I, I cannot, cannot praise it enough. The amount of extras on display, the second unit work, the lighting, the editing, the, the music, the, the detail and all the props. It's, it's phenomenal. Cannot praise it enough. I kind of want to go back and rewatch the Helm's Deep thing just because it's that awesome. I don't have time, but I want to. So there's the preparation scene. I kind of already mentioned this. The sick, the old, the young. 
It's interesting that Theoden refuses to even call Gondor. I say it's interesting because it's very likely Gondor would not accept that call, because of Denethor. But he refuses to even try. That again helps to emphasize where Theoden's mind is at at this point in time. We've already lost. Why bother? No, my lord Aragorn, we are alone. And then later the elves show up. Already talked about that. Great saying. Uh... Legolas, of course, goes into full cool mode. Finally, Gimli is actually a badass in Helm's Deep. It's probably the one thing in this movie where he is truly a, a powerful, amazing warrior of, of doom, as he should be, and it's awesome. Haldir, who has a little bit more of an expanded role thanks to this, ends up dying in the battle. And there's this really interesting scene where he's, he's injured and he looks around and he sees the dead elves. And it just kind of strikes him, the reality of what's happening to him and to his people. And then he dies, which kind of sucks, but you know. And then look at Theoden's face when the explosion hits. Again, tremendous uh, praise to Bernard Hill. Because has he even heard of an explosion in his life? He might have heard of fireworks, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't actually have that much else to talk about Helm's Deep until we get to the conclusion. So let's, well, let's go and discuss that now. So, uh, that's a weird thought. Why do I have that here? Oh, okay, that's what that is. Um, so Gimli and Aragorn are—I mean, it's a fun scene. But they're a bit of a wrecking ball. <laughs> they came in like a wrecking ball. And I don't know the rest of the lyrics. Uh, I don't even know who sings that song. And, yeah. It, it, I, I would be more objectionable to the fact that they have such strong and apparent character shields going on. But it's okay. I'm willing to give it to the movie. And you know why? Because they do this big, dramatic, heroic last stand with the music clanging. And then they do their desperate escape and it buys them about 30 seconds. 30, 35 seconds later, bam, gates breached anyways, despite all the reinforcements, despite all that work, it was for nothing. And that's why I'm okay with it, because that's what should happen. They basically bought them time in this continued retreat. They retreated to Helm's Deep, they retreated behind the wall, into the keep, they retreated into the actual center, you know, the retreat, 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 that's all they're doing. It's one of the reasons why Aragorn's convincing Theoden... I'm actually having a little hard time keeping all those names straight. It's a good thing I know this series pretty well, because I keep, like, okay, hang on, what's the king's name? Theoden. Um, they, the, the reason why Aragorn convincing Theoden to ride out, which is an amazing scene, by the way, perfect music, perfect lines, just, wow. I, I mentioned how when it's good, it's amazing. It's ama This whole scene is amazing, because it's not that they ride out and they really have a big chance of turning the tide. Ultimately, they were riding out to their deaths. They were. But they were doing it for the right reason this time. Rather than curling up in a hole and dying like animals, they were charging out in order to buy just a little bit more time for our people to get the hell out of here, to escape through the caves, to flee, and to survive. It was the kingly decision, in other words. The decision of a leader. And it's interesting that... Theoden, you know, his response to that, for death and glory, you know, because he's still in that despair state. And that's Aragon who says, no, for your people. And that's what finally gets through Theoden's skull. It's funny because Theoden's character arc kind of does this and then pauses 
and will continue into Return of the King. But he, he gets to this point, he's like, you're right. Yes. Yes. The helm of Hel... The, 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 the horn of Helm Hammerhand will sound in the deep one last time. And, ah, and it's this great freaking scene. Um... And so they, and, and of course, Helm's Deep was saved, and this is some wonderful symmetry here, in almost the exact same way it was almost lost by an alliance. Because remember, Sauron got Saruman, and Saruman, being the, the manipulator and the conniver, the elite thinker, disciplined one, got all these groups together and unified them and pushed forward as a front, and that's exactly how the good guys managed to defeat him in return. Which brings me to the Ents. Now, I haven't talked about the Ents much because I don't have much to talk about them. The Ents declined to help. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. Because, logically, of course, the Ents should help. Because if the enemy wins, then choppy-chop, right? But they're not thinking like that because they don't understand that. They don't, they don't have any comprehension of it. And there is a brilliant scene that I already referenced where Merry and Pippin talk back and forth, and Merry flat out says, there will not be a Shire. There's nothing to go home to. And then Pippin finally is like, hang on, and has what is arguably his first real idea. And he's like, why don't we go this way instead? He convinces Treebeard to go by Isengard, because he believes that if Treebeard sees what he just realized, Treebeard will be convinced. Because it was finally hammered home for Pippin, there will not be a Shire. And so now he is sharing that revelation with Treebeard by tricking him into it, basically. And that's exactly what happens. By the way, brilliant scene with the devastation of Fangorn. It's really well done. Even the audio is perfect. It's absolutely devastating, the way it looks. I mean, I'm not a huge tree hugger, but whoa! <laughs> And uh, and that's what actually really pushes the Ents into things, because now they have two, two purposes here. Not only do they understand what it means by, you know, what, what defeat means, just like Pippin has just understood, but now they've been hurt personally. The Ents were hurt. It's not some vague, nebulous, might-maybe kind of thing. Their people, their trees, some of the, their old friends have been burned and hacked and destroyed and, and killed. So they now have a personal investment in the f struggle. And then they allow their rage to drive them forward. And that leads me to the next point. I, I've had some people say that, well, why didn't we just mobilize the Ents before? They're a death machine. Well, actually, they're not. The Ents, if they were fighting, oh, I don't know, say that army of 10,000, would have been wrecked. But they're not fighting an army of 10,000 elite Urukai. They're fighting some orc workers. Isengard is undefended. And so the Ents just sweep through unopposed. And look at Saruman's face as it's happening. He is at his most disheveled here. He's, 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 he is laid bare as all of his strength, his alliance with Sauron, the people who swore to him, and all the power he had built up with his orcs and his Urukai has all gone away, and now he has nothing left but fear. He, is, he chose capitulation over death, and now he is being faced with death. And it's all over him, and his motions and his face. So then we get to Osgiliath. 
Oh, I'm sorry, really quick. I like the idea that Saruman would have a fully stocked larder. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, he probably just never bothered to empty it back when he turned to the side of horrible evil. Anyways, so, uh, Osculioth. I don't have much to say about it. I mean, it's a lot of just kind of back-and-forth thing and some of the stuff you'd expect, but I do like the fact that what finally gets Faramir's attention is a two-fold punch. It's a one-two. Actually, that'd be like this, to be more accurate. It's a one-two punch. First, Samwise hits him with the truth. Your, you know, the reason Boromir died was because he, he tried to take the ring. The ring drove him mad. And that cuts to Faramir. That gets Faramir's attention, and he's like, Again, Faramir's a thinker. He knows there's some threat about the ring. He knows it's something that shouldn't be used in, in under most circumstances. And he's seen what it's done to Frodo in general. So he's like, huh. Then, he witnesses Frodo try to straight-up murder Sam, his best friend. He... Seriously, think about that. Faramir is not stupid. He puts two and two together very quickly. And he's like, crap. Okay. Ring has to be destroyed. And he makes that decision, and in so doing, shows his proper quality. He really, as Samway says, he, he, he shows his, his, his true quality, or however the heck he says it. And he does. Because Faramir, even though he's been portrayed as an antagonist up to this point, has only been that because he has been <laughs> willing to do whatever is necessary to please his father. When he lets go of that and thinks about what he believes is right, he very quickly shifts to the good guy side, and he will be a firm good guy for all of the next movie. Of course, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit because I want to end on a different point. Schmeagol, I, I want to mention this because Schmeagol has had kind of a bit of a character arc thing going on. I mentioned that earlier. And in the end, notice that now, with everything that's happened, Gollum, of course, hasn't changed, and he never will. But Schmeagol, Schmeagol has started shifting. He's still cowardly. Oh, God, I'd love to just murder them, but I can't. The fat one's watching me. That's a bit of a shift from earlier, isn't it? And what actually convinces Schmeagol is, oh, we, we could have her kill her. It's actually really eerie to see the fairly more light-hearted side of Schmeagol so eagerly accepting such horrible acts as a result of everything that's happened to him. I want to comment on this briefly. It's debatable how much of what happened to Schmeagel is his own fault. Lord knows he did something pretty terrible, you know, back when he first got this. But he has been crapped on over and over and over, pretty much his whole life, and through the movies, and that will continue in the future. And I bring that up because... Well, honestly, I kind of, I'm kind of with Bilbo on this one. The pity, you know. And that will pay off in a rather ironic way in the third movie. But let's move on to the final thing, which is actually something that happens like five minutes before the end. There's this wonderful speech. It is actually my second favorite speech in his, in, in fiction. Uh, right after the Shakar speech in Babylon 5. Yeah, no, there's several Shakar speeches, but, you know. Uh, it's my second favorite speech. I'm not going to recite the whole thing because it would, it would have taken up like this whole page. It's a big speech. But it's about, you know, that there is, that things do get better, that there's good in this world, that it's worth fighting for, that things are horrible. How could things ever go back to being the way they were? That speech has hit me more than once in my real life. 
And that's something powerful and something worth holding on to. And it kind of fits through through the whole overall theme of this work. And uh, Two Towers in general is very much about de delving down and then rising back up right at the end. But not quite to the extent of The Empire Strikes Back, because that's the next film. Which we will be getting to next week, and for me, tomorrow. I will see you guys around.